The experience of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane is described in several of the Gospel records. Last time we were noting in Mark chapter 14, several things about the events that transpired in the place which was named Gethsemane. We considered it as a place of unbridled sorrow. Look at verses 33 and 34. He taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed, and to be very heavy. Now the English here doesn't really do justice to the meaning of these phrases. If you were to study the Greek language, you would see that sore amazed and heavy are terms that are capable of of several different ideas. One example is of someone who is so distracted mentally that they've almost lost their minds entirely. That's the thought here concerning the Lord being sore amazed. The Lord's experience is something that we can't really enter into. And we might wonder why the Holy Spirit has recorded this. As well as the next verse, where Jesus said to them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. And again, the meaning here in the original tongue is really strong. It is that the Lord's sorrow and His experience of that sorrow was such that it almost brought him to death. He almost died as a result of this experience. So there's unbridled sorrow here. We noted also that there was unparalleled suffering. In verse 35 and 36, the Lord went further and he prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, which, as we suggested, is a very wonderful, very touching term in the original Aramaic. Abba is really the word in that language for Papa or Daddy. So here's a word of affection. This is like a child coming to a loving father and saying, All things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Take away this cup from me. And we pointed out that that cup was an awful cup of unparalleled suffering. The Lord was already anticipating what was going to take place at the cross. And then, of course, Gethsemane was a place of unconditional submission. For you have the words at the end of verse 36, Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And even as Christians, it's very, very hard for us to come to that place where we say to God in in certain circumstances, Lord, not what I will, but what you will. That's very, very hard sometimes. Because the will of God is not always easy. In fact, the will of God for the Christian can be very difficult. It can be very, very hard And so sometimes the Lord has to break us to where we're willing to bend the knee and to submit to Him and say, Lord, not what I will, but what Thou wilt. 
And our Lord Jesus came to that point. His will was submitted to the Father's will in this matter of drinking this awful cup. And we explained that that cup was a cup of wickedness. All the sins of all of God's people in every generation all crystallized into that cup that he would drink. But not only that, it was not only a cup of wickedness, it was a cup of wrath. The wrath of God that was our due upon the Lamb was laid. And by the shedding of His blood, the debt for us was paid. The Lord Jesus bore the full weight of the wrath of God that was due to us eternally. Now you might think about that and say, well, how is that possible? That never-ending wrath could be crystallized into a few hours of suffering on the cross. Well, I don't understand the mystery of that. All I know is that Christ is an eternal person. And he is able to bear, therefore, the weight of eternal wrath. Laid upon him, not because of his own sin, because he had none. But because of our sin that he was bearing and taking responsibility for. And you and I can never know what that meant. We could never, ever, ever understand what that entailed. Now there's a hymn. It's in our book, in which there's a prayer. And it is, oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And the Lord would have to help us to understand, at least in some degree and measure, what that meant. Now it's significant That in this time of preparation for the cross, when the Lord's holy soul anticipated those approaching sufferings at the Father's hand, Jesus was engaged in prayer. You see this in verse 32, again in verse 35, and again in verse 39. In verse 32 of Mark 14, he said to the disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. In verse 35, the Bible says he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed. And verse 39, again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. Nobody ever prayed like Jesus prayed. He was both eloquent and authoritative in his preaching. But what must the prayers of the Savior have been like? Never was there a voice heard that was more exalted, more holy, more fervent, or more intense than that of the Lord Jesus Christ on that night in the Garden of Gethsemane. His prayers, as we have already noted, were offered with great suffering. Hebrews Chapter 5 tells us who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. In the garden, the Lord Jesus did face the wrath of Satan. He wanted the Lord Jesus to be put to death some other way than the cross. 
His prayers were offered with great suffering. His prayers were, you will note, very simple. There was nothing complicated about the prayers of Christ. His prayers were short. And yet his prayers were strong. And we can learn from that concerning our own praying. Praying doesn't have to be verbose to be powerful. Some of the most powerful prayers in the Bible were the briefest prayers. Lord, save me, I perish. The Lord's prayers could not be measured in the immensity of the words, but in the intensity of the heart, someone said. And many times the disciples had heard Jesus praying, but there'd never been any prayer like this one in the Garden of Gethsemane. His prayers then were with complete surrender. Not my will, but thine be done. This is particularly important when we come to pray. Sometimes we ask the Lord for things that if He were to give them to us, would not be good for us. Now, we think they would. That's why we ask for them in the first place. Just like a child, I can remember our girls asking us for things that if we had given them to them, would not have been good for them at all. But they thought those things would be good for them. That's why they asked for them. And sometimes you have to say no in order to be kind. And that's the way it is with the Lord. Sometimes the Lord will say in answer to your prayer, yes. Sometimes he will say, wait. And sometimes he will say, no. Because I've got something better for you instead. Not my will, but thine be done. But notice the Lord Jesus in prayer held nothing back. He fully surrendered. He fully submitted himself to the will of his Father. And of course, the praying of Christ was always successful. The praying of our Lord Jesus Christ is unlike any other praying because it was always in accord with the Father's will. And just before we leave this point, let me just say that it's an interesting thought to study the gardens of the Bible. We're speaking here about the Garden of Gethsemane. It was actually a cemetery because Joseph's tomb was nearby. It was a walled garden. And the history of the human race all began in a garden, didn't it? In the Garden of Eden. It was a real place. History will finish in the Eden above, as we often refer to it. The Savior prevailed in His great work in the Garden of Gethsemane. You go back to the first garden. Adam was in rebellion against God. He sinned and the whole human race fell. But in this Garden of Gethsemane, the Savior was in submission to God. In the Garden of Eden... Adam lost everything because of his disobedience. Milton wrote the book, Paradise Lost. And that's what happened through Adam. But in Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus gained everything for us by his obedience. What we might call the tragedy of Eden was reversed in Gethsemane. But having said all this, 
I want to go beyond the praying of Christ in the garden to what happened immediately following this. Because right away, when he stopped praying, the Lord Jesus was placed under arrest. He was held for trial as a result of the betrayal of Judas, one of the twelve. And that's what I want us to consider today. The arrest and the betrayal of the Lord. And in this account, in the scripture, three things become clear right away. Number one, we have the thought of the Lord's submission to his enemies. Look with me again at verse 41 and 42. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, that's those disciples, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. And this is all in keeping with what we said already about Christ never trying to escape from the cross. The Lord never tried to get away from Calvary. We see him right now as one who is ready and willing to suffer at the hands of men and of God. And in this submission to his enemies, you will see in verse 41, the announcement that the Lord made. Simply these words I want us to consider. The hour is come. Now what's he talking about? The hour is come. Well, we need to compare some other scriptures for the context of this. If you go to John's Gospel, I want to show you several verses in that Gospel that speak to this issue. The hour has come. In John chapter 7, first of all, and verse number 6. Well, we'll, we'll read verse 1 to begin with, which gives you the context of this. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. There's the context. They always wanted to do away with Christ. Every opportunity they could get to kill him, they were going to take it. So you look at verse 6 of John 7. Then said Jesus unto them, My time is not yet come. Now what does he mean? He means the time of his death. The time for his suffering. There was a time, but it wasn't yet. Go down to verse 30 in John 7. Again it says, Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. This is a a constant refrain in John's Gospel. If you went back to John chapter 2 verse 4, he said to his own mother, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. You'll see it again in John uh, chapter 8 and verse 20. These words speak Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no man laid hands on him. Why? For his hour was not yet come. It wasn't time yet. And finally in John's Gospel chapter 12 
verse 23, we have this difference where his hour has finally come. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Jesus knew it was time. And if we were to compare the words of Matthew 26 and verse number 18, once again it mentions this particular aspect, Matthew 26, 18. He said, Go into the city to such a man and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. So here it is. The hour is come. Again, John 12, verse 27, as we've just read it, makes this clear. There was this hour, there was this time, and the Lord Jesus, in the same context, He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Here's the whole reason why He came into the world For this particular time, that hour that had been chosen, that hour that was foreordained from all eternity. You know, nothing happens by chance. Nothing. I know in everyday parlance we talk about accidents. We talk about happenstances. We talk about things that just happen to be occurring and We look upon things as coincidences and so on. People talk about luck. Let me tell you, there are no accidents. Everything God has foreordained from all eternity. Now that doesn't mean that we live in a fatalistic way. You don't walk out into the middle of the street when traffic is going back and forth and don't look both ways. And say, well, if it's my hour, I'll, you know, I'll get run over. Well, the chances are it will be your, your hour if you do that. That's not how you're supposed to live. We're to act with common sense and use what little bit of grey matter God has put between our ears. But the fact of the matter is that there was an hour that the Lord was referring to here that had been foreordained from all eternity. The hour has come. This is the time. When Peter was preaching at Pentecost, he referred to that time. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. He's preaching about the death of Christ. And he says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. What what Peter is saying here is, you're responsible for killing Jesus. You're responsible for slaying Him, for crucifying Him. But all that you did has been foreordained by God from eternity. It's part of His plan. Therefore, before this time that He refers to in Mark 14 and verse 41, the hour has come. Before then, the Lord could not have been killed. Though the enemies tried many times to do just that. I already referred to this last week. 
whenever Herod met the wise men after Jesus was born, they calculated according to the time. It had been within the last two years that he was born. He was now a young child. That's why you have to understand that when people talk about the birth of Jesus and they have the baby in the manger and the wise men there kneeling down with the shepherds, that's not scriptural. The wise men were never anywhere near where the shepherds were. It was a different time. The shepherds visited right at the time when Jesus was born. The wise men came probably two years later. That's why the Bible doesn't say the babe, as it says in in relation to the shepherds, the babe lying in a manger. It says in Matthew chapter 2, the young child. And this is why when Herod put out a decree that all the children in Judea were to be killed from two years old and under. Can you imagine that? What an evil, wicked monster. We know what little toddlers are like, how cute they are. Little ones anywhere from birth to two years old. And Herod puts out an order that all of them are to be killed. Why? In order to try to kill Jesus. That was the reason. And through the years, from that time, there were many who tried to kill the Lord. We read in John chapter 7 and verse 30 again, the same words that I read a few minutes ago, just to rehearse it. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. They could not do it. They weren't allowed to do it. Again, John 10, verse 39. It says there, Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And you can read the same thing in Luke chapter 4, in his hometown of Nazareth. They took him to the brow of the hill. They were going to throw him off. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Because his hour had not yet come. He had often escaped their evil hands. But now it was time to submit to their wicked intentions. So there's the announcement. The hour is come. But there's also the anticipation. At the end of verse 41, the Lord says this, The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. The Savior knew exactly what was about to happen. He had anticipated this betrayal and he had anticipated his going to the cross. Because he knew all things because he is God. At that very moment he knew what the disciples didn't know, which was that Judas and a whole multitude of people were just about to come and arrest him. See, the Lord had already predicted it. Earlier in this chapter, you will recall that the Lord told the disciples, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Verse 18. The Lord had already mentioned this. He already talked about this. 
And so now the hour has come and Judas and the multitude were about to arrest him. Now is this not a remarkable thing? You have the Lord and now 11 of the disciples because Judas has gone on his errand. His wicked plan is going to be carried out. So there's the Lord and his 11 disciples that are left. But Judas comes bringing with him a large group of men. They're referred to in verse 43 as a great multitude. Immediately while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The fact that he brought this multitude of men armed for conflict showed that neither Judas nor the religious leaders of Israel understood the Lord or what his mission was in this world. Now let me point out that while Mark says in verse 43 that it was a great multitude, in John chapter 18 and verse 3, it uses a different English word. It says, Judas then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. That word band in the Greek language is the word spiran. And it refers to the tenth part of a legion of Roman soldiers. You know how many that is? About 600 men. Add to that the representatives of the scribes, the Pharisees and the elders. And it has been estimated that there could have been between 700 and 1,000 men there to arrest Jesus. Can you imagine? Perhaps you've never considered that. You might have thought this was just a band of a couple of dozen. Here's perhaps coming up on a thousand men to arrest the Son of God. Now why was that? Because they thought he might resist. They thought he might try to run away. They thought the disciples might fight. But of course, as indicated by John chapter 18 and verse number 6, the Lord could have destroyed them all in an instant. We'll come back to that in a moment. But the fact, you see, is he was ready and willing to be taken. He submitted to his enemies. And by the way, you notice the words of Christ in verse 49 of Mark 14. I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not. The, the, the verse before that, he says, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not. But the Scriptures must be fulfilled. Why did you not arrest me then? Every day I was in the temple teaching. Why did you not come and try to take me away then? The enemies, you see, foolishly thought that he might try to escape or that his disciples might put up a fight or that he might do some great miracle to get away. But no. The Lord Jesus was in subjection to the will of his enemies because he was in total submission to the will of God. That's why it happened like this. And so he allowed the traitor to do his dastardly deed. 
In verse 44 onwards we read, And he that betrayed him, that's Judas, had given them a token or a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. You'll know that that's the one to arrest when I kiss him. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. Can I just point out that the kiss of Judas is all the more sad and contemptible since the word that's used here in the Greek language is the word for a lover's kiss. This is a kiss that you would give to someone that you loved with great affection. What a hypocrite. What a liar. Pretending to love Christ when in fact he was a traitor and a betrayer of Christ. Someone put it like this, Judas's infamous kiss showed how low a human heart can go. And so he points out the Lord, and the Lord allows himself to be taken. So that's the first point, the Lord's submission to his enemies. There's another thought here, and that is the Lord's sovereignty over the events. When I say the Lord's sovereignty over the events, I mean that he is the one that's in control of the narrative. It's not the enemies that are in control, it's the Lord who's in control. And all through this narrative, it can be seen that Jesus is in control. Look, for example, from verse 46, And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? And then these words, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Now, in the midst of all of this, and some of the other gospels bring it out more fully, Peter, Simon Peter, impulsively, as usual, drew his sword, and he was ready to start lopping heads off left and right. That's what Peter was doing. When he took out that sword and cut off the ear of Malchus, he wasn't, you know, just sort of measuring it up and just let's just cut off his ear. He was taking this sword and he was going to chop his head like a melon in two. And all the others there, I believe he would have tried to kill every one of them until he was killed. He was ready to take out as many of that band as he could. But Jesus stepped in and stopped him. And the Lord did an amazing miracle of healing right there and then. Go to Matthew chapter 26. Because here we have the actual story more fully given. Matthew 26 from verse 51. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and, and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest, of course we know his name was Malchus, and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Now, look at this. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, 
And he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. I said there was one-tenth of a legion of soldiers there. The Lord said, I could have more than twelve legions of angels. Twelve times six thousand. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In that same hour, said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. The Lord's in charge here. And the Lord kept Peter from doing any further harm and damage. He kept the disciples, in fact, from being killed. For a riot could have broken out right there and then. It would have resulted in the death of all the disciples. But to show that the Lord was in charge, let me go to the passage I mentioned a minute ago in John 18. In John chapter 18, it says in verse 4, Jesus therefore knowing all things that should come upon him. See that? He anticipated it. Went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. Now you should understand, of course those that have been listening to me for a long time will know, that when there are words in the authorized version in italics, italicized words are not actually in the original scripture. They have been put in there by the translators to help the flow of the speech to help you to understand and to make the flow of the sentences better. So in fact what happened here is, if you look at that, the word he is in italics. Jesus saith unto them, I am. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am he. Again, he is in italics. You can leave it out there. As soon as he said, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? Well, this is an expression and a statement of his deity. The Lord Jesus right there in the garden is giving them a glimpse of who he really is. Moses said to, to the Lord back in Egypt, When I'm sent to Pharaoh, whom shall I say has sent me? And the Lord said, you will tell Pharaoh, I am, hath sent me. I am that I am. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I'm God manifest in flesh. And when he said that, I am, they fell backward to the ground. Every one of them, that whole multitude, all hit the deck, as we would say today. So you see how the Lord Jesus is in control. He's allowing the multitude then to bind him and take him away. Because as soon as they get up off the ground, the Bible tells us in verse 12 of John 18, Then the band and the captain and officers of the Jews took Jesus and bound him and led him away. See, the Lord allowed himself to be bound. The Lord allowed himself to be taken because he was sovereign still. 
Can I tell you that the message to the church and to the world today is that in Jesus' sovereign submission to arrest, he was in charge. And don't forget that today that the Lord is in charge. A lot of people are worried about what's happening in the world and who's in control. The Lord's in control. The Lord is on the throne. So don't be lying awake at night worrying about who's doing what. And whatever global conspiracy you may think is taking place and who's working with who. The Lord is in charge. The Lord is upon the throne. He's not going to allow anything to happen to His church that hasn't gone by His throne for approval first. You read the book of Job. Read the first couple of chapters of Job. The devil had to get permission from God to touch Job. In fact, the Lord was boasting about His servant. Seest thou my servant, Job? Look at Job. And the devil said, well, if you take your hand off him and leave him alone, he will fall. And the Lord allowed him to do things to Job because the Lord's in control. And here our Lord was aware of fulfilling the prophetic scriptures. Look at Mark 14 and verse number 49. I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you took me not. You didn't arrest me then. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. That was our Lord's recognition. He was in control of affairs, making sure that the Word of God was fulfilled to the very letter. Because you read about the betrayal of Christ even in the book of Psalms. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. That's a reference to Judas, prophetically. Bishop Ryle said there was no accident or chance in any part of the close of our Lord's earthly ministry. The steps in which he walked from Gethsemane to Calvary were all marked out hundreds of years before. The 22nd Psalm, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah were literally fulfilled. The wrath of his enemies, his rejection by his own people, his being dealt with as a malefactor, his being condemned by the assembly of the wicked, all had been foreknown and all foretold. All that took place was only the working out of God's great design to provide an atonement for a world's sin. The armed men whom Judas brought to lay hands on Jesus were, like Nebuchadnezzar and Sennacherib, unconscious instruments carrying God's purposes into effect. Let us rest our souls on the thought that all around us is ordered and overruled by God's almighty wisdom. And I wish that God's people today would get that into their heads. I read some of the greatest rubbish, to use a good British word, about the present circumstances in the world from Christians who are out of their minds with worry about what this one or that one's doing and what this government will do and that government will do. Listen to this. Let us rest our souls on the thought that all around us is ordered and overruled by God's almighty wisdom. This is written well over 150 years ago. The course of this world may often be contrary to our wishes. The position of the church may often be very unlike what we desire. The wickedness of worldly men 
and the inconsistencies of believers may often afflict our souls, but there is a hand above us moving the vast machine of this universe and making all things work together for His glory. The Scriptures are being yearly fulfilled. Not one jot or tittle in them shall ever fail to be accomplished. The kings of the earth may take counsel together and the rulers of the nations may set themselves against Christ. Psalm 2 verse 2 But the resurrection morning shall prove that even at the darkest time all things were being done according to the will of God. Hallelujah. But there's one other thought here and with this we will finish. As well as the Lord's submission to His enemies as well as His sovereignty over the events We note also here in Mark 14, verse 50, the Lord's solitude in his experience. And they all forsook him and fled. Every last one of them. Including Peter, who said, Lord, though all men should forsake thee, yet will not I. If I should have to die with thee, I will do that. And all of them said the same thing. And there's John, the beloved disciple, the one who is found leaning on Jesus' breast at supper. He refers to himself all the way through John's Gospel, not by his own name, but by this term, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He left the Lord as well. They all forsook him and fled. They all ran away. And they left him alone. In fulfillment of the Old Testament Scripture, he trod the winepress alone. Our Lord Jesus was in absolute solitude as He submitted Himself to the cross. You know, even on a human level, loneliness is a very sad thing. There are people in this world who are lonely. And I think the older that folks get, the more that happens to be the case because they get to the point where all their friends are dead. Have you ever gone to a funeral of a person who was almost a hundred years of age? There's hardly anybody there. Because everybody belonging to them, even sometimes the children of that hundred year old, are gone. Some time ago there was an old soldier in England who died without a family and without friends. And there was going to be nobody at his funeral. Can you imagine? No one at his funeral. And when the Legion, which is a veterans administration there in Britain, heard about this, they put together a whole event where ex-servicemen and women, veterans and others, and youth groups, and boys scouts and girls scouts, and all got together to be at that man's funeral. And it was a wonderful event. And it was so touching to see that. But if it had been left as it was, there would have been nobody at his funeral. Loneliness. There are some very lonely people in the world. But we have no idea what loneliness means. When viewed in the context of the death of our Saviour. He was absolutely alone as he submitted himself to the sufferings of Calvary. 
And there's a hymn. Years and years ago when we did that sort of thing, my wife and I used to sing duets. We used to sing this song by Ben Price. I want to quote it to you. It was alone the Savior prayed in dark Gethsemane. Alone he drained the bitter cup and suffered there for me. It was alone the Savior stood in Pilate's judgment hall. Alone the crown of thorns he wore forsaken thus by all. Alone upon the cross he hung that others he might save. Forsaken then by God and man, alone his life he gave. Can you reject such matchless love? Can you his claim disown? Come, give your all in gratitude, nor leave him thus alone. And the refrain goes, alone, alone. He bore it all alone. He gave himself to save his own. He suffered, bled, and died alone. And oh, may we be willing, if need be, in our day to stand alone for him.